0: Good morning again, and welcome again uh, to South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Glad to have you with us this morning. If we haven't uh, met yet, my name is Nathan Turquie, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here alongside Woody Markert and Corey Pelton, and uh, glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I should point out that in our confession earlier, um, my do- one of my kids asked me, What I was doing talking to David, Um, I'm a different Nathan, um, and uh, but um, we obviously need to revisit that Bible story at some point. Um, But uh, let's see. If you weren't here last week, uh, last week was a special week for us. Uh, We were able to install our newest pastor, Corey, um, and very thankful that they're a part of our church here in in Baton Rouge. We also had the opportunity to hear Brent Corbin uh, preach. He's, uh, he works with our denomination's campus ministry and uh, oversees a number of campuses in our area. And he preached on the last part of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, which uh, was Paul's written prayer to the Ephesian churches. And By the way, uh, Brent is an incredible preacher, and um, if you weren't here last week, you should go get on the website and listen to that sermon, Uh, or even if you were here last week, uh, like I was, um, go back and listen to it again like I did this past week. We're very thankful uh, for that, Brent. Thank you for your preaching God's Word to us. Well, this morning... We're picking up where Brent left off, because right now on Sunday mornings, we're going through Paul's letter, New Testament letter, to the Ephesians. Um, And so, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, which is in your bulletin. If you want to turn there, I'll read it for you in just a second. But if if in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul was lifting us up to see... God's work of redemption from God's perspective, high up on the mountain where we can see all kinds of things we couldn't see at the foot of the mountain. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is showing us God's work of redemption in Jesus from the perspective of an individual Christian. So what's it like? Uh, Well, um, it's not just like, uh, but to experience God's work of redemption, Paul is telling us, is to be brought from death to life. Um, It's to be liberated and to be set free from our bondage. Uh, It's to discover the purpose for which we were created, or even better, recreated, um, as Paul tells us in this passage. So, we're going to get there, but listen as we read this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and look for some of these themes of life and And freedom and purpose as I read for us. Um, So let's let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now briefly to ask for his help. Father, we do uh, come before you and ask for your help and ask that you who, um, who are kind uh, and loving and merciful, that you would send us, your spirit, uh, in order that we would understand your word, in order that it would be applied to our hearts, in order that we would know the hope we have in Jesus. Uh, Father, do this for our good, uh, but also and most supremely for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Author uh, John Stott wrote in these verses, wrote that in these verses, Paul first Plums the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. Uh, Paul, he wrote, is painting a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. Uh, Almost 20 years ago, I was dating uh, this beautiful young woman named Jennifer. Um, who's now my wife, and we had made it to the point um, when I was ready to propose to her and ask for her hand in marriage. And so I started planning for the proposal, and step one on my list was go buy an engagement ring. Um, And so I drove home to Baton Rouge. I was living in Mississippi at the time, and I think I went to every jewelry store in Baton Rouge, you know, looking for that perfect ring. And in every single jewelry store, uh, that I went into now that might've been the last time I've been to a jewelry store. Um, but, um, and maybe it shouldn't have been, but, uh, anyway, uh, now that I say that out loud and it's on tape, you <laughs> need to edit that out. Uh, but anyway, um, So every time I went in to a different jewelry store, the experience that I had was uh, just almost perfectly identical because I would be looking at the ring and I would tell the salesperson there, the clerk or whatever, who's working there, I'd say, I want to look at that ring in the case. And so that person, he or she would get the key and unlock the case and and get the ring that I was looking at and... um, and then right before they let me look at the ring, every one of them, every store did this. They pulled out a little black piece of velvet and put it on top of the uh, case and then put the ring on top of that velvet. And And you know why the jeweler did that, don't you? It's, it was for the vivid, sharp contrast, right? Um, the beauty and the brilliance of those diamonds, they, they shined most clearly, most exquisitely, most sharply against that dark backdrop. Um, and it's against the dark backdrop of our fallen nature, of our brokenness, of our sinful condition that the beauty and the brilliance of God's redeeming work for us in Jesus is most clearly, exquisitely, and sharply seen. Um, now, as hard and even as uncomfortable as it might make us to talk about the depth of our depravity this morning, you and I need to see and to be looking for the paradox um, in all of this that the greater our sense of peril, the greater our sense. Of need um, will be the greater our experience of release and joy and freedom through what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so, here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to take these verses a little bit out of order, but here's what I want us to see. I want us to look in in the opening part of the passage and and talk about our condition, our human nature, um, and then I want to go to the end of the passage and I want to talk. With, uh, with you about our purpose. Uh, and then finally, I want us to talk about our salvation, which is really how we get from our condition to our purpose. Okay, so our condition, our purpose, our salvation. First, let's talk about our condition. What we're talking about here is the condition of our hearts, our human nature, in August of 1971, a psychology professor at Stanford, uh, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, uh, conducted a famous experiment, experiment which was called uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment. And 24 students who had volunteered had, and, and had been screened and considered to be of sound mental health, they were chosen to be a part of this experiment and the basement of, uh, of the Stanford psychology department was turned into a simulated prison and arbitrarily half of these students uh, were chosen to be prisoners and half were chosen to be prison guards and the students who would be prisoners they were told beforehand before the experiment to expect that some of their privacy would be invaded Um, that they ought to expect that some of their civil rights uh, would be violated. And the students who were to be guards, um, they were given no training whatsoever. They were just told that it's your job to maintain control in the simulated prison uh, in the basement of this building. And the experiment was to last for two weeks. Day one went by without incident. But by day two the guards had already begun to treat the prisoners sadistically. Within 36 hours, prisoners were showing signs of emotional disturbance, disorganized thinking, uncontrollable crying, and rage. The fake guards were subjecting their fake prisoners to physical and psychological abuse and sexual degradation within 36 hours. And in the middle of the and in the middle of the night, when the guards thought they were no longer being observed for the experiment, the abuse would escalate. <clears throat> Things had so deteriorated that the experiment had to be shut down within six days of starting. And Zimbardo wrote that one of the questions to arise from the experiment was this: This is his question. How could intelligent Mentally healthy, ordinary men become perpetrators of evil so quickly. What was the data telling them, right? How should the data be interpreted? Was it the circumstances of the experiment that took ordinary men and turned them into perpetrators of evil, Or was it that the circumstances of the experiment revealed something about the condition of these men's heart, their hearts, before they ever walked into that basement and that simulated prison? That the seeds of evil were already present in the heart, and they just needed the right environment to fully blossom. Because, see, that's the Bible's understanding of our condition and in verses 1 through 3 Paul is writing about the condition of our hearts and honestly what Paul says it it is distasteful and it is deeply offensive because Paul wasn't using a figure of speech or a metaphor in verse 1 when he wrote we were dead in our trespasses and sins Right? He's saying when it comes to our relationship with God, our hearts are not alive, but dead, flatlined, real spiritual death. But you'll notice in verses 2 through 3 that it's, a, it's an interesting kind of death. Because Paul wrote that we were dead, but we were walking in our trespasses and sins. This is the original walking dead. If you've seen that TV show about zombies. And the imagery of zombies is actually maybe a little bit helpful here because this image of death and decaying and rotting corpses, it's death, right? And yet, upright and walking about in that death, walking but not in control, in- dead but enslaved. Right, driven by an uncontrollable, unquenchable compulsion, slavery. That's how Paul described the condition of our hearts, dead and enslaved. And, and if you look closely, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but you'll see he talks about a slavery to the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil. But he also talks about a slavery to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which is the world. And then he talks about a slavery to our own passions, which is the flesh or the self. Uh, he's saying, we're not masters. We're mastered, right? Dead and enslaved. And he paints this deeply offensive uh, and disturbing uh, picture of our condition. I, I love watching Nature shows, so things like the Discovery Channel, National Geographic Channel, Animal Planet. Those are some of my favorite channels on TV. Um, shows like the Planet Earth. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes when you're watching one of these shows, they, they make use of uh, time-lapse photography sometimes. And this uh, time-lapse photography allows you to observe uh, things in the natural world that you can't really perceive In real time Uh, the ability to show you a 24-hour period of time for instance or even a whole year of seasons um, in a matter of seconds and the one that fascinates me is of a camera that's trained on a flower and how when the Sun comes up when time is compressed you can see the petals of that flower open to the Sun and how all day long that flower traces the arc of the sun through the sky. And it's beautiful to see this flower literally moving all day long. You, you couldn't see it just by staring at a flower for a couple of seconds. But it's moving all day long to face the sun. And the flower has to open. And it has to face the sun to receive life. Listen, the Bible tells us we were made in the image of God, that we were made to face him and to find life living before his face. Old theologians like Martin Luther and others described our condition like this. They said, our hearts, and, and the Latin was, are incurvatos say," which I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not, but um, that's what it looked like. Um, But the meaning is that our hearts are naturally curved in on themselves, turned inward, right? We're not facing the source of life. We're turned away. We're turned in on ourselves in radical self-centeredness. We're turned in in coldness and darkness and death. There can be no life if you're not facing the sun. And here, here's what's interesting. If you look at the whole of these verses. You see that Paul. He, he's a bit back and forth with his pronouns. Sometimes it's you. Then it's we. Then it's us. And Paul was, Paul was writing to the Gentiles. and That's the you in this passage. And they were pagan. They were idolatrous. They were hedonistic. They were licentious. They were living for all the sensual pleasures of life. Death and slavery in them. Expressed in hardened, fist clenched rebellion against God. But Paul represented the Jewish people, and that's the we in the passage, the moral, upright, religious, obedient to the scriptures, law abiding people. And yet Paul says, we were dead too. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Death and slavery expressed in morality, in obedience, and in religion. See, our hearts are so radically curved in on themselves that we'll even take good things like morality and obedience and we'll use them not to serve God, but to serve ourselves and to serve our own passions. You know, Because you know this just like I do. There are lots of reasons to be good, that have nothing to do with loving God, right, to gain power, to avoid getting in trouble, to gain control, to be approved of, to get rid of the nagging guilt and emptiness of our lives. We'll even be good and moral so that we can completely avoid God altogether, so that we can just get him off our backs. let It's a deeply disturbing and offensive picture that Paul gives us of our condition. And yet, I would suggest to you that it's the only picture that makes sense of the data. It's why theologians and pastors like John Owen and uh, Robert Murray McShane would say, the seeds of every sin known to man lies in each of our hearts. No matter who we are, No matter what we've done, we're naturally turned in on ourselves in death and slavery. By nature, we're offensive. Children of wrath, as Paul writes in verse 3. All right, second. Let's jump ahead in this passage, and we'll talk briefly about our purpose. And I'll be brief here, but I want to come back in the next point to talk about how it's possible to move from our condition to our purpose, but here we need to see the contrast and, and see what our purpose is. So, in verse 10, Paul wrote, for we are God's workmanship. And I just want you to sit here with me just for a moment. It won't be long. Um... The Greek word for workmanship uh, is poema. Uh, It's where we get our English word poem. Um, and, And that's because it's a word that was used to refer to a work of art. And that could be a poem, or it could be a song, or it could be a painting, it could be any number of things, really any work of art. And so you see, Paul is saying, God is the artist, and you are his work of art, you are his masterpiece. That's how some English translations translate it. You are his work of art, his masterpiece. And here's why I want you to sit with this just for, for a few seconds. Because I know it's tempting to want to get to the rest of the verse, want to read through it and get to the rest of the verse. But listen, before God ever tells you what to do, he tells you what or who you are. And you are his masterpiece, he says. He says. Yeah, I think I've told you before that one of my guilty pleasures, I guess, probably makes me very uncool, but is I like to watch shows like America's Got Talent. Um, and, and you know, the, the part that gets me, I mean, I, I enjoy seeing all the talent and the acts and the, the singers and all that kind of stuff, but, but the part that really gets me, my favorite part, is when, a, a, let's say, a singer finishes his or her song on that stage. And for the briefest moment, There's a period of silence when they finish. Um, And insecurely, somebody like a Susan Boyle or a Paul Potts stands on the stage and is waiting for the response. And then the audience erupts in praise and applause and a standing ovation. Um, And I think it gets me because we are made for that. To he, we are made to hear the applause about us. To feel the cheers and the approving applause at our backs. And not just anyone's applause. Because that, that kind of applause, it's fleeting. But we were made to hear the applause of the king of Kings. The applause of the artist over his work of art, his masterpiece, to be awakened and come alive to your purpose is to know you are his treasure. You are his work of art. You are his masterpiece. You are his trophy through which, verse 7, he displays the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. And not until And not until that sunlight has dawned upon your heart are you ready for the rest of verse 10. You're his masterpiece created or recreated in Jesus for good works. He made you new. He made you a new creation. That is who you are. And it's out of your being. It's out of your newly created identity that good works are to flow. Lynn Kohick writes that Paul understands creation as functional. Um, She writes, Paul cannot imagine a new creation without its attending purpose. Creation's flower, it fulfills its purpose when it opens up its petals and traces the arc of the sun throughout the sky. You are a new creation With an attending purpose, you are made to face the God who recreated you and to live out of that identity. The 20th century um, added a few new words to the English vocabulary, one of which is the word uh, prequel. Um, We invented a new word. We had to invent a new word to describe all the movies and the books that were coming out that would go back in time to tell us origin stories. Right, prequels, stories that go back and tell us the origin of Spider-Man or the origin of Superman or, or whoever or whatever to tell us how they came to be. And I don't, think, I don't think I've ever seen anything written on this, but I think it's fascinating that the more our culture has acquiesced to a belief that humanity is a cosmic accident without meaning or purpose the more we feel we need our stories to be complete. To have a beginning, to have an origin, and I think it has to do with the fact that we are hungry in this life for meaning and purpose, and we instinctively know that creation is functional, that it's origins, that it's creation stories that shape and give life and and our stories the stories of our lives, meaning and purpose. What is our purpose as God's new creation? It's not all that dissimilar to the original intent and purpose of creation, although it is heightened. It's to live our lives curved out towards God, facing him, not curved in in our self-centeredness. It's to face out into the world and to bring order to disorder. To fill the earth with beauty. It's to cause life to flourish in all kinds of ways. It's to bring healing and hope into the world. It's to cut across the grain of a self-centered, bitter, and empty world with love and hope and fullness of joy. On and on we could go, and we need to at some point. To just imagine all the what all these good works that God has prepared beforehand for us are. But we can at least say this. When we were dead, we walked in our trespasses and sins. But made alive and recreated, we've been given a new purpose. Which is why Paul comes right back to that same word, walk, in verse 10. We've been liberated to walk in freedom. To be who God made us to be. To do the good works before the God who loves us and sees us as his masterpiece. All right, last, let's talk about our salvation. How is it that we move from our condition to our purpose? Two words, two little monosyllables at the beginning of verse 4. But God. But God did something. But God intervened. But God did everything necessary to move you from your condition to your purpose. Dr. Morton Lloyd Jones wrote that these two words, but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the entire gospel. But God. From verse 1 to 7 is another one of Paul's long sentences in the Greek. Um, And and translators break it up to make it more readable for us in the English, which is great. But I bring it up here just to say this, that there's no main verb in the original sentence until you get to verse 5 to hear what God did. Paul wrote that God did three things. He made us alive with or in Christ Christ. He raised us up with or in Christ, and He seated us with Christ, or in Christ. Earlier in the service, you confessed very similar words together in the Apostles' Creed. We said together the third day, "'He rose again from the dead.'" He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Those are key historical events in Jesus' work of salvation. And sometimes they get referred to as the resurrection, the ascension, and the session. But here's what's thrilling. Here's what's exciting. Here's what you need to spend time meditating upon. Because Paul isn't like we were doing in the Apostles' Creed, affirming something we believe about Jesus he's affirming something about us that we were made alive with Christ that we were raised up with him that we were seated with Jesus in the heavenly places see not you will be one day but he's not talking about heaven one day this is not future tense it's past tense and so we scratch our heads and we wonder, what's he talking about? Because he can't mean physically, because right now we're here in Baton Rouge. What he's doing is he's speaking legally. He's saying, "You are united to Jesus in absolutely everything he is and everything he has done for you. Because he died for your sins. You are as free from condemnation of your sins as if you had died for every sin in your life, past, present, and future. Because he was made alive, you who were once dead in your sins, you've been made alive with him. Because he has been raised to his father, he has raised you up before his father's face. Before his father's face beaming in love over you. Because he has been seated and has accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. He has seated you. And here's what that means. It means you can finally sit down and rest. Everything. Everything has been done for you. Is what Paul is saying. But God. Everything has been done for you in Christ. One of Paul's favorite expressions. He uses it 160 plus times in his letters. And everything means everything. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. The word this is referring to the entirety of your salvation. Even and including the faith to believe. Right? Even the very instrument by which we grab hold of Jesus' faith, that comes to you by grace. It's the gift of God. And here's what that spells. It spells the end of boasting. The end of boasting in your works. A few years ago, I was at our denomination's annual gathering, which is called General Assembly, and one evening, uh, Dr. Tim Keller was preaching, and I think it was from a passage in 1 Corinthians, I couldn't remember exactly, where Paul writes, let the one who boasts... Boasts in the Lord. And it was really helpful to me um, because Paul, all throughout his letters, he's talking about boasting. He writes against boasting in the flesh or in our works, Um, but he also speaks positively about boasting in the Lord and even boasting in the cross. And what was particularly helpful was the way he explained how boasting was really a, a ritual part of of warfare. Right, so in Exodus, Pharaoh boasted to rally his soldiers to overtake the Israelites when they were fleeing Egypt. In Judges, when God whittled down Gideon's army to just a handful of men, it was so that they would not boast in their own strength. And it makes sense boasting is how generals and leaders got their soldiers whipped into a frenzy to rush off into battle and into what might be their death. Right? So, no one wants to (laughs) rush to their death. And so, So you boast. You say our swords are sharper. Our shields are bigger. Our chariots are made of iron. uh, Our numbers are stronger. Our arms are stronger. And everybody screams together and you run into battle. And you, we're leaving Tim Keller now. You think Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Face painted, painted blue and he's yelling at his troops and they rush across the field into battle. Or you think LSU football hype videos. The week before Alabama comes to town. And there's that intense music, right? And the crowd cheering and the, the bone-crushing highlights that are played for you. And everybody gets pumped up by them. What is that? That's boasting. It's boasting. But here's the deal. It's not just in the big events of life, the huge moments of life that we're boasting. It's when you wake up tomorrow, To face the challenges of life in a broken world, in a hard place, you and I will feel the need to boast in something, to something that gives us confidence to go out and face the challenges of life. And it's seen maybe in the self talk before we walk into the boardroom to make the presentation. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough right? Or we'll tell ourselves, well, look at my salary. That's how I know I'm important, right? Or look at my beauty, or look at how much my friends approve of me, or look at my grades, or look at my morality, or religiosity, or all my successes that I've had. You know what? We need the cheers at our back. We need the applause in our ears to hear the shout that gives us confidence. So that we can rush out into battle and face the hardness of life and its challenges. But you know this, don't you? <laughs> Grasping for an identity by your works or your performance or however you want to label it, whether that's how smart you are or how successful you are or how moral you are, or what a hard worker you are, whatever it is, it's got us so anxious. I mean, we're tied in knots and we can't rest. We're so anxious trying to earn that approval and get that applause. And we live in fear of losing it. Because if we were ever to fail, if we were ever to stumble, if we were ever to fall down, it would all be gone. Paul says, it's when you know you were dead in your transgressions. And the only thing that made you alive, the only thing that made you God's masterpiece, was but God. God. In Christ, you were made alive, you were raised, you were seated with him in the heavenly places. His grace from beginning to end. And it's when you know that that you can say with Paul, like he says in Galatians chapter 6, the book just before this in your Bibles, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, the cross, there is no image more deeply offensive or distasteful than that. The condition of our hearts was such that nothing less than the brutal, shocking, shameful death of God's own Son could save us. But, verse 4, because of His great love with which He loved us, Because he loved us just because he loved us. He voluntarily came and died the death we should have died. And when he was made alive, we were made alive with him. We were raised with him. We were seated with him. You are his masterpiece. And when you know that, you can finally rest. You can finally rest. The cheers and the applause are at your back. All of because of god 's all because of god 's grace to you in Jesus, and you can finally find freedom to live out your purpose to walk in the works your Father prepared beforehand for you, and you can do that in joy and without fear let 's pray together, gracious heavenly Father, thank you again this morning for your word. Um, father, we confess that the way you talk about us um, and describe our condition, it's not how we would usually describe ourselves. Um, It's unflattering. It's offensive. It's distasteful. And yet, if we're honest, it's the only thing that makes sense of the data because we know our hearts naturally They're not facing out towards you. But we're curved in on ourselves. And so, Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise that you saw fit to do something for us, to intervene. We give you praise that you loved us just because you loved us and sent Jesus in order that he would die for us, be raised for us, lifted up for us, and seated for us. Um, Father, we pray that you would help us, that we would see that reality, that we would delight in it, and that we would live out of that new identity we have in Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.